Welcome to the Ralston College podcast. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Today's episode is my second conversation with the sculptor, painter, composer, the Queen's Sculptor in Ordinary in Scotland, Alexander Stoddard. I said in my introduction to our last conversation that Stoddard is a mediator, a hierarch. Today, he speaks about his role as a diplomat to the past, about culture as a communion with the dead. Stoddard's work is a stern rebuke to our presentism, our obsession with the present, but his work is not negative or life-destroying, but life-redemptive, for it opens us to the trans-historical community of past, present, and future, to which all of us belong. Cathedrals, as Sandy puts it in this conversation, are for the hosts of people yet to be born. But most of us saw the great cathedral of Notre Dame burn before our very eyes. Will those who come after us know us for what we lost? Or for what, against all odds, like the medievals of a thousand years ago, we built for them? I'm Stephen Blackwood. Thanks for listening. I've got the great honor today to be here with Alexander Stoddart, who is Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth's sculptor in ordinary in Scotland and a member of the Royal Society of Edinburgh. Thanks so much, Sandy, for joining me today. Thank you, Stephen. Of course, I have a few questions for you, but I would be thrilled to ask about anything that is particularly on your mind right now. Just my haircut. (laughs) Sorry, COVID hair. (laughs) <laughs> that's how you're supposed to be though i mean isn't that isn't the artist supposed to have you know a beethoven a beethoven uh style yes there was a poet a poet's thing a uh, fashion for that in the 20th century ezra pound uh, uh, hugh mcdermott you all you couldn't be a poet unless you had big hair <laughs> that's such a lot of nonsense I see you're there in your studio in Paisley, uh, which is wonderful to see, Sandy. I have such a fond memory of my visit there. You know, as an educator, I'm always interested in hearing about people's formation. What were your significant influences growing up? How did Sandy Stoddard become Sandy Stoddard? There's a story that goes round about this, and it's to do with when I was a child in, in Eldersley, which is just about five miles west of of Paisley, where I am now. And at the bottom of the road, there was the small monument to the national hero of the Scots, Sir William Wallace, of great renown. Now, there was a small monument there in the form of a Mercat cross, sort of a little small building like this, with a shaft coming out the top of it, and the royal arms on the top. Because Wallace was a Balliol man, that is, he's, he's fighting for the Scottish crown. He's not one of these rebel, uh, you know, he's not like a, he's not like a lefty rebel. He's a pity bourgeois, a pity aristocrat, and he's running a people's army for sure. And they're fighting for the Scottish crown against the tyrant Edward I. Wallace's monument was down there at the foot of the road, and. There was always a presence of the idea that here was a kind of abode of the dead, the noble dead. And it was somehow in my childish mind, the notion that he was somehow living in there, 
or would come to visit it at least periodically, or maybe dead in there. So there was always a great enthusiasm in my mind for monuments and tombs and churches. Buildings that are essentially redundant, they have no use, no, no as it were, util function, except to sit as transmission posts from our world into the world of the dead. And that really is what constituted my <clears throat> moral and spiritual outlook that I, and for which I've been, been paying up all my life that sin of keeping diplomatic channels open with the dead. <laughs> for this you will never be forgiven. But we know that the dead live in companionship with the yet to be born. So what you're really doing when you keep your embassies of the dead open uh, is you're really dealing with the past and the future. And that tripartite arrangement between the people who are dead, the people who are yet to be born, and the people who are in the, in the now, the ones that are what you might call quick. If you can keep that triangular movement going, then you have a culture. In the last century, in the 20th century, we forgot about the dead, paid little heed to the yet to be born, and just concentrated on ourselves. And that's why the West went terribly Philistine, because it gave up on culture. Culture is, above all, a communion with the dead. I was doing this when I was a child of four. Poor little perisher. What you've just been saying about the culture of the dead, Sandy, seems to me really at, 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 the heart of, at the heart of things and at the heart of our own cultural crisis. Modern physics teaches us that time is relative. What is the relation between time and eternity in sculpture? Does that speak to that very question? Well, Homer, when he talks about bronze, he talks about, he's got an epithet for it, and it's always deathless bronze. For the, for the ancient Greek, the idea of bronze being very durable was very compelling. So what I suppose what sculpture does is it does make an attempt to beat the inevitability of decay by, by making itself in a fortificational kind of material. It fortifies itself. Now, insofar as it does set itself up as a fortress, then it's more liable to be attacked by little man types who like to marshal their armies and take these fortresses. That's why sculpture is so uniquely subject to vandalism. Iconoclasm, such as we've seen in the Christian era of the fourth century AD, and then re repeated recently with the, uh, the um, fanatical Islamists in Palmyra, uh, you know, the idea of <coughs> image destroying, iconoclasm. This is something that turns on sculpture more than anything because the paintings have all withered and decayed. The buildings are still being used and utility preserves them. Whereas a statue stands in the middle of space, taking up space, and the statue is doing nothing. It's showing no action. There's no interaction. Its, it's eyes are blind, are hypnotic. It won't notice you. And to some people, transient, temporal people. This is a, a source of immense an annoyance and anxiety. I mean, there's a very good example of this in the Br'er Rabbit story. They were written by a chap put into the mouth of an old black 
probably a slave, I'm not sure, Uncle Remus he was called. And he told these comical and sinister stories about the inhabitants of this <laughs> countryside, each of and every one of which is trying to kill the other, it seems to me. Br'er Rabbit is the hero, and Br'er Fox is always trying to get him. So what Br'er Fox does at the side of the road one day, as I read this as a child, and it absolutely mesmerized me. He set up what they would call a tar baby. Now, this is an idol made out of straw and stuff and covered with sticky tar, something sticky, right? So it's standing there at the side of the road. So Br'er Rabbit, he goes up and he says to the tar baby, good morning there. And the tar baby, he say, tar baby, he say nothing. So the Br'er Rabbit tries again. And still, the tar baby, he say nothing. So in anger, Br'er Rabbit goes to strike him with his left paw. And the paw sticks, of course. Then he goes to strike him with the right paw, and it sticks. Then a kick with the foot, it sticks. And then he finally headbutts him. <laughs> and that sticks. And this effectively catches Br'er Rabbit for Br'er Fox to devour or do something with. Now, everybody think, for, for most folk, that story is about, well, Br'er Rabbit's escape, ultimately. But for me, as a child, the story was the amazing response that Br'er Rabbit takes to the fact that the statue, or the tar baby in this case, won't answer him back. And I've seen this kind of thing operative amongst contemporary arts types. You know, the commissars, they've all got their mouths like a pussycat's bottom. They're all so right on, they're going to float away. And they look at a statue and they say, well, it's not relevant to me. It's completely irrelevant. And uh, look, you know, there's no interaction. And of course there's no interaction. What the person that objects to the statue objects to most of all is the fact that he or she is not noticed by the statue. And these people live their lives to be noticed. They're never off their Instagram. So the statue doesn't join in with that sort of rubbish. I think that's one of the reasons it seems to exist oblivious to the world, oblivious to where it is in, in space, and oblivious to the passage of time because it never changes its clothing according to the needs of fashion. So for these, these reasons, the statue seems to have a capacity to look beyond time. It is not a contemporal thing. It is a contratemporal thing. And because it will not collaborate with the times, uh, it's seen as a fifth columnist. I think the screen may have frozen there for a second there, Sandy. Why don't we pick up, Sandy, from... from what you were just saying about the, the, the triangle of present, past, and future. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. Roger Scruton, the late, great Roger Scruton, talked about it. Um, but it's, it's an old idea. It's been picked up by a variety of people, uh, savoury and unsavoury. <clears throat> but um, basically it's the idea that in the modernist outlook, you know, the, the modern materialist, 20th century orthodox outlook, there is only really one place and, and time, and that's the here and now. Uh, the there and then, it's irrelevant to us. There's a, mor there's a morally turpitude in this aspect of this, of course, because it means that 
basically they're not really very careful people. They're tribalists in this case, in this case temporal tribalists. But in the great cultures, we always knew that we had to have ancestor worship and we had to lay in things like cathedrals, for instance, for the hosts of yet-to-be-born people. So we paid attention to the people who are also not here. Nowadays, the dead are the last unemancipated social group. You know, they'll be the last to get the vote. But um, so that, that's always been something important to me. Uh, and, and it's made me a, a distinct creature because I've got more friends on the other side, as it were, than I've got here. Um, as regards whether they're viewing or not, I don't think they are, frankly. But um, you, you put out the call. It's like the, it's like the message in the bottle. In good faith, you put the message into the bottle from your desert island called the present, and you hope that it will be caught by something in the in the, in the past or the future. Now, the modernists don't like the past for the simple reason that they were not there. So how can the past be any good if it hasn't got them in it? Because they're ultimately incorrigible egotists. They're all, they're all rotters one way or another. So they don't like the past because that was before the benefit of them could be conferred upon humanity. And although they like the future in a way and often call themselves futurists, they don't like the kind of future that is equal to the past that is the future that's a thousand years from now. So they like the proximal future, but they don't like the telefuture, the distant future, because that looks too much like the Victorian age, un unattainable for them. So modernist futurism is really just all about what they fancy doing within their lifetime, within their scope, uh, you know, allotted span of mischief making. And their futurism is therefore very limited. But people who are past fixated, such as I am, we can also have a, a far future fixation because the things that we do aren't stupid, idle, and, 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 and fatuous. They actually hang around for hundreds of years. Bronze, as Homer said, being deathless, and marble being quite hard to assail, really. Well, you mentioned a minute ago the destruction of the great monuments of Palmyra. Mm -hmm. That destruction, in a way, could be a metaphor for the iconoclasm that characterizes, you know, so much of our culture, intellectual and artistic culture in particular. Yeah. Why do these, you know, one can think of the communists, one can think of the, the animus towards the past that characterizes the humanities right now, one can think of contemporary architecture. Why is it that certain ideological movements must attempt to erase or destroy the reminders of the past. Right. Well, I've got a very decisive view of this. And it comes from reading Schopenhauer, really, all my career. I hated it at first because I was young, and all young people hate Schopenhauer. And then suddenly it clicked. And when it did click, it caused me no end of internal turmoil. But I'm so glad I read it all through. Why, why is it that the communists, you know, all, all the activists of the world, they do want to efface the evidence of the past, and they want to do it at the level of the Sorbonne University tutor, just the same way 
as they want to do it when they're young men that, that take it into themselves to go into a graveyard one afternoon and knock over gravestones. It's exactly the same motivation, whether it's in Jean-Paul Sartre or Foucault or any of these scoundrels, as it is in your local delinquent that's gone out and get himself a bottle of Buckfast and decide to have some fun. What the young man's doing is knocking down the domain of the dead. And what Foucault's doing is knocking down the culture of the dead. And what they're both doing is trying to fight against death. This is their fundamental worry that they have. It is indeed a vicious expression at either level of the unscrupulous and optimistic instinct, the will to live itself. It's life affirmationism. Now, because traditionally we've got this idea that we, on the cultural and spiritual right, um, are the correct ones, then we've got this idea all too often, I think, that um, we, we are life-affirmative people. We're not nihilists. Now, I take, I take a different view of this. I think as being on the political right, proper conservatives of the old style, we are, are in fact the life deniers. We stand in extreme suspicion of the value of existence. We take a, a strong Aristotelian view of this. I mean, it's, it's um, anti-nihilism. Uh, uh, no, anti-natalism. Anti uh, Aristotle had it. Um, Nietzsche talks about it in the wisdom of Dionysus. Um, the entire wisdom of the East in, uh, adopts it as well. The idea that, that life is, in essence, a sorry, miserable, and dirty thing. And that it is the, the role of the distinguished person to stand above that, to stand apart from that. So the young men that go and knock over gravestones in the graveyard, what that's an, an objectification of is quite simple. It is the will to live, furiously conquering the domains and trophies of the dead. Just as you know, the people that say, well, Walter Scott is not worth reading nowadays because it's irrelevant to us. It's the same motivation, and it comes from an unscrupulous and vitalistic optimism that is characteristic of all the peoples that set up the camps. Hitler, Mussolini, Lenin, Stalin, they're all the same creature, unscrupulous optimists that are building a road to an ideal future, which road is saturated with the blood of others. Now, it's very hard and very counterintuitive for us to accept the word optimism as being a word for the bad, because all our lives we've been propagandized by life itself to think of optimism and the best of all possible worlds as being the great thing. The thing, optimism is good. You always say, I'm a half, glass half full person as a glass half empty person, you know? This is a ridiculous uh, uh, formula. But all our lives we've been told that optimism is good and pessimism is bad. But if you successfully read Schopenhauer, you will experience a Copernican twist of this and realize that when you are at your most optimistic, when you look back, you will find yourself there at your most aggressive, at your most obnoxious, your most vulgar, um, 
uh, and you're most um, impositional. But when you realised that it was only noble to be pessimistic, then dawned on you the sense of suffering in the world and the need for amelioration at a small level, bit by bit. Optimism has infected the West um, as a way of trying to get rid of the need for compassion. You know how we have the, the welfare state in Britain, right? Have you heard of the welfare state? Of course. Yes. We have the welfare state, and what that does is it institutionalizes the poor. The state then taxes us and takes a quantity of our money away to pay out for the poor, but it takes away our job to do it personally and directly to the poor of our choice. And this means that we don't have to worry about the question of arms and compassion. We just sign a cheque and send it to the government. We, we farm off the responsibility. And that's a classic, classic device of optimism, that in fact it takes control and does it away, does away with it. So the difficulties are out of your face so to speak. So this is one of the great problems that we have when we're trying to promulgate this idea. And it's very different from so much of the contemporary right, um, right-wing view that optimism is the good thing. We think, of, we think of Ebenezer Scrooge as the pessimist. But of course, he, strictly speaking, he's a thundering optimist. He's just mean and horrible, but that's a different thing. And he has no sense of the pity of the world and the need to extend loving kindness to every other man, woman, child, creature, and thing, actually, and thing. So you should be kind to statues and ornaments as well. You're talking about the, the, idol, the idolatry of the present, the kind of presentist obsession of the present, of the present day. Yeah, well, we, the idea is live for the now, carpe diem. That, that's one of the few Latin tags that people know nowadays. It uh, sees the day, live for the now. Now, there's a lot of sense in that in some respects, especially when you're dealing with grief uh, and the feeling of loss, either through bereavement or divorce or whatever it might be, that uh, you're always, your, your grief is largely based upon a prophecy of what it will be like two years down the line when you're feeling like this currently. But if you can live for the moment, in that sort of situation, it's very helpful. Make no great plans. Um, however, it also goes hand in hand with a culture, um, culturally deconstructing instinct to render anarchy everywhere. That is to take no, no consideration of future needs. So it's one of these, you know, you know the, the left tried to, effect direct revolution at the 100 years ago from now and they weren't successful at it in the west at least so they decided to go through the long march of the institutions um, to try to destroy society that way to render it supine so that it could be easily conquered and they did it through architecture through art fundamentally through music you know music didn't have melodies anymore poetry was not allowed to rhyme buildings had to be looking as though they're already demolished, um, and, and uh, all, all, so on. 
And one of the, these were the institute they went, they went the institution of marriage was was done away with or you know, traduced, I suppose is the word I'm looking for. And they did it with the education, the idea of the authority of adults. They did it with the valorization of the young uh, and and the devaluing of the old and um, and so on. And one of the ways of uh, continuing this kind of thing, was to make sure that society would be a basket case. So in the summer of love, in the 60s, we really started up. The idea was that you didn't give any care for anything, and thus society would be rendered completely um, undefended against what might happen. Now, at that time, you remember, that was when the wisdom of the East started to hit California, you know, the 1960s and 70s. It actually started much earlier than that, <clears throat> but um, it started really sticking in there. And the wisdom of the East does have this thing, this culture of do not worry, just as Christianity has it. The same thing, Jesus telling the, the, the disciples not to make any provision for themselves, that you know, God will provide. And so this is quite an old idea. But that's when it kicked in, and the idea that, that, that if you were careless with your society, then that you are being personally very good. But the problem is, is there are people to look after, the old, the sick. So that was another thing. Um, there's also, the, Stephen, the, the, the thing about the now, as I say, this egotistical thing, that the now must be good because we are here. We represent it. We are full of ourselves. Everybody else is wrong, just us. I had a very different view as a young man. I looked about the buildings of Glasgow, and I saw what was going up in the 70s. And I was thinking to myself, we are obviously very wrong. And then I'd look at Glasgow City Chambers, built 100 years before, and I would see there a building the size of a small Greek city-state. Uh, and it's sooner a mission to Mars, frankly, than a building like that could be built today. And I thought to myself, well, it's obviously the case that we are infinitely inferior to those folk in the past. And this got me into trouble at the art school of Glasgow when I expressed these views. Uh, you're seen as a traitor. Well, I don't know if there's any question that the, what's going on in the hatred of the past is a kind of resentment very often that, that we, we, we feel that we will not compare well to yeah. these, these monuments of earlier times. There's a kind of very tragic paradox in this and that is that the, the hatred or demonizing of the past, which you know, is so prevalent, I would say, even particularly in our universities, is a self-inflicted tragedy. It's like a person who chooses to erase all of their memories. I mean, you're not left with anything whatsoever to know yourself yeah. and the world. I mean, isn't that the paradox of deleting the past, that you become empty and dimensionless and without any ability to recognize and know even yourself? Yes, it's a catastrophe. You, these children that go to art school and universities nowadays are going into a system of deprivation, systematic deprivation. They go in quite clever for their high school standards and they come out stupider than when they went into school in the first place. They come out as brainwashed, mentally eradicated, deculturalized, useless, useless units absolutely disposed of 
I've got re refugees from the art schools come to me all the time, Stephen. They've been to art school. They've got a stupid degree filming themselves masturbating from three angles. I'm not kidding. Dundee School of Art, the star pupil, a lady, did that for her degree exhibition and was brought up to the absolute summit of a triple star first class honours for that rubbish. So the nice kids that, that go to art school, they see this fraud and at the end of it, they want to escape all, erase all knowledge. They throw away their work that they've done, what little they have done, and they don't want anything more to do with the art school. So they come to me and there they get to learn how to do something. And it's all so much fun. I don't mess with their heads and I don't ask them to talk about their identity. You know, the idea is that they subsume their identity in applying themselves to the work in hand in the studio. And, and this is a, an amazing sense of release that they get because suddenly they're not concentrating on themselves. They're looking at a thing that will be made. And that thing can only be made by reference to the past in my studio. So suddenly, to these little lockdown children who have been, as it were, in coronavirus lockdown, right, for four years in order to get a spurious degree, actually come out of lockdown, and suddenly they realise that there's a gigantic landscape for them, that they can roam over, they can go tomorrow to tune in to Richard Wagner, of whom they'd never heard hitherto, or, or they can go and, and, and hear some... Some polyphony, you know, Palestrina or something like that. Then they can go and read Charles Dickens. Then they can look at the pre Socratic philosophers of ancient Greece. All this is completely closed to them at art school. They're blindfolded from it. The wisdom of the West, particularly the West, they don't even get taught the East these days. Well, I think that is, a, that is exactly the paradox that to be obsessed with the present is also to be. To be a kind of slave to it, and so Analysis. you deny yourself the liberation of a more expansive view of your of yourself above all by denying yourself the the wisdoms and corrections and illuminations of other time. Let's turn to sculpture for a minute. I, I remember when I had the pleasure of being with you there in Paisley, and I know that in addition to your sculpting, you 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 draw and you you write and play music. You paint. How did sculpture become your primary medium? It started as music, uh, Stephen. Music first, then possibly music last. Music is a super art, as Walter Pater said, the art to whose condition all the other arts aspire. I think the reason for this is that music is absolutely direct and it is the most effective uh, medium to raise the hair in the back of your neck. You know, they sometimes call it the tingle factor. Have you heard of that? Of course. Yeah. So you hear a certain point in a piece of music and you blah, you bristle. It's so thrilling. I always get it at the end of the Meister Singer's Overture when the orchestra, a relentless C major, the orchestra comes down and down and down and then cuts. And it's taken up by a chorale in the church. It's the first beginning of the action. At that point, every hair surviving bristle 
on the back of my neck goes rises up. And I'm very interested in that effect. Music does this better than sculpture, architecture. Poetry can do it, strangely enough. But music does it best of all. Thus, it is the most powerful and the most toxic of the arts. That's why all the crying at funerals starts when the music starts. It's basically, it's a theopompous thing. It's leading us into death. Um, and that's one, one of the reasons why the, the hairs on the back of your hand do stand up, because basically the will to live in you is being threatened by this sonic effect. It's a fear reflex. Do you know when a cat meets a dog, the first thing the pair of them do is stick their coats up. They're trying to make themselves bigger, right, in the face of the threat. And that's what that tingle factor is in art. It's a fear reflex. What are we afraid of? We're afraid of the cessation of existence that this aesthetic force seems to promise. Therefore, we bristle to make ourselves bigger in the face of this kryptonite. Music is kryptonite to our Superman. Now, so music that is first and last for me, and I, I test the culture of a person according to the nature of the music that they can tolerate. That's a very, very rude thing to do. But these I've got very little time left, and I've got to be sure. So I make sure that, that they don't ever use the possessive when they talk about the music they like. Because people that talk about driving down the road listening to my music, you, you follow me? No symphonist ever talks about my music. No, no person that listens to the proper orchestral repertoire ever talks about my music. They never use the possessive. People that use the word my music are referring to Billy Joel, um, Abba, Bruce Springsteen, Todd Rundgren, whatever his name is, and, and a variety of other pop musics. So this is why Desert Island Discs, it's a, a record selection program in Radio 4 in Britain, is so important. You get to choose eight pieces of music that you'd be left on a desert island with. And uh, every politician should be made to undergo this test so that we know exactly the character of the person because music will disclose your being at the depths of your soul. So music's very important from a policing point of view. But, you know, I have students that have been come to me. One came from the Ruskin College in Oxford in great distress. <clears throat> she was a third-year student of sculpture and had come to my studio to see what to do because it was terrible for her. And she had never heard of the sculptor Bernini and she had never heard of the composer Richard Wagner. And it makes you realise that these children have been through deprivation such as North Korea wouldn't impose upon them. So music first. But sculpture, well, the reason sculpture has been so powerful for me is because of this idea of loyalty and permanency. And I think I first ex experienced that as a young boy going north to visit my grandfather in Caithness, which is a county way up at the top of Scotland. This meant that there's a family we had to drive for two days in the old days, we had to drive for two days through Scotland uh, and every 
turn would come across another war memorial from the Great War. And what was so compelling to me was that these soldiers were still st bronze or stone, were still standing there, no matter uh, what time had passed. They were still standing to attention, ready. And while we went past in our in our vehicle with our stupid concerns for fun and all the things we might do, they're standing there still and attentive. And I think that's one of the reasons why the the, um, the savages that b bombed the uh, Buddhas at Bamayan. What was the name of that crowd? The Taliban. The Taliban who bombed the Buddhas in Afghanistan, you know, these great big Buddhas that were in the rocks. And I think one of the reasons they did that was because the, the things are standing there silently, whereas they, the, the Taliban, is a very vitalistic, life-affirmative movement, and it doesn't like this image of this thing not taking part, pale and white, like death, still, no action, no air-punching. And I think that's one of the reasons why, the, just like the activist reformationists in Scotland, you know, in the time of John Knox, they loved to smash statues in, in ecclesiastical situations. And it was said to be an account of religious and theological objections. But really, it's to do with the, the glee and the fun of it. So um, making, making statues was very important from the point of view of counteracting a nasty, vitalist, momentarist culture. Uh, it's the way to signify where one really stands in this respect. We're living right now in a time in which people are tearing down monuments of the past, literally tearing down monuments of the past. And of course, that's, it, it's, it's hugely important that we come to terms with and acknowledge the perversities both in ourselves and in, and in our past. How are we to understand, Sandy, the, the monuments of past times without, I suppose my question really is, how are we to understand them without repeating the very evils that we think we might perceive in them? Well, time heals everything. So there are very, there's very little sound of the Dacians people, the Dacian people's front complaining to co contemporary Rome that Trajan's Forum is still standing as a celebration of Trajan, not only um, uh, conquering the Dacians, but as it were, putting them to the ultimate sword. So Trajan's Column stands as a monument to a near genocidal campaign in antiquity. Now, the same thing can be said for the Colosseum. Colosseum is there for a for for a, a Roman holiday, and there we know that one or a very small actually proportion of Christians were thrown to lions and wild beasts. It's actually a very small proportion, but it was sensational, and it's important for the early history of the of the dominant um, Western creed. So then we have uh, we have other monuments that that are you know, from the Renaissance that signify the the glories of some unscrupulous um, uh, mercenary, for instance. What's his name again? Colleone, you know, in, in Venice. You know, the great uh, Verrocchio monument of, of the, the mercenary that fought for Venice and for a whole lot of other people. 
these people are absolute savages, hired soldiers. But the, the gosh, their monuments are good looking. So we've got this problem of the monuments of the past. And in Germany, they've got this big difficulty just now. It's, it's really kicking in with the remnants of the Third Reich's efforts in this respect. The tragedy with the Third Reich is that here was a, a regime that was shoddy, cruel, careless, optimistic, and brutal. And if only they'd built in their own image. You know, in other words, if only they'd put up buildings that we put up, then it would have been spot on. It would have been a perfect match. Right? You, have you heard of a building like called the Shard in London? Have you heard of that? It's a savage thing. It goes Terrific. up. It's called the Shard. Now, a Shard is a thing that you go to A and E for to get removed from your eye. Right? But we call our buildings in terms of these rebarbative, horrible, spiky, obnoxious things. I remember one time, and this is one of the most profound things that ever happened to me. My lovely daughter, the oldest one, Clara, was about 14 or something. I was, a, I was preparing to give a talk at Strathclyde University Architecture Department. And the talk was entitled, Hating Classical Architecture. Why so many people do, you know, hate it. And so I was, I had this, up on the computer screen, I had a photograph, of course, of Albert Speer's plaster model for the great big hall that was going to be in the Finnish t town of Germania, or city of Germania, finished by 1958, I think, the plan was to be. And you know how Speer made great plaster models of these things? So here's a photograph of it in my screen, of that very dome, with a big propaganda sky behind it. My daughter comes in the room, sees the picture, and said to me, wow, where's that? Right? Because she's been through the Scottish education system, so the child knows nothing, of course. She's a perfect innocent. So I said, well, darling, <laughs> that building, that's a mock-up. That's a plaster model with a fake sky behind it. But um, it was never built. Oh, why not? I said, well, because the clients did a, a pretty packed half decade. <clears throat> and uh, he died before it could be completed. Oh, she said, oh, that's a shame. She said, who was the client? And I said, well, the client's name was Adolf Hitler. At this, the poor child jumped out of her skin and said, but, but wasn't he a really bad man? Now, did you get all that, that story? Can you understand what's sensational about that reaction? Here's a child who's innocent, knows nothing, sees a model of the Great Dome in Albert Speer's plan, doesn't know anything about it, does not see with her ears, in other words, what she's heard about it, but sees it purely perceptually. And she looks at it and she thinks, wow, I want to see that. And she says, that's good, the form of the good. Then when I say to her that it was ordered by Adolf Hitler, she hears the name that is the form of the bad. And she cannot put the two things together. So she says, but wasn't he a really bad man? So if I'd shown the shard in London and said that that was designed by Ad or for Adolf Hitler, she would have, yeah, obviously, obviously. But the problem is with that so much of the art and architecture, particularly the architecture of the Third Reich, is it is not built 
in the image of the people that ordered it, of the regime under which it's it's um, under which it prospers. So this is the great difficulty that we have nowadays. That this is this is why modernism formed a kind of alliance with Nazism. And the deal was this: you be you, you the Nazis, be the most horrible people in history, the apogee of evil, and you can have classicism. You can still have that. And in this way, the modernists fatally and irrevocably associated classical architecture with that bunch of scoundrels. And that's a brilliant arrangement for the modernists. They love that because it keeps what they can't do safely toxified. See, they simply can't do it. They can't do it physically and they can't do it dispositionally either. They have no disposition to do architecture as beautiful as that can be. So they're delighted when it becomes the possession of the Nazis. Therefore, it's completely off the agenda. It's the same as a poor little swastika, you know, ruined forever. It was just the, si the sign of goodness in being. I think it's what that means in, in Sanskrit. Svastika means goodness in being. And of course, the Nazis took it over. This is the best sign in the world. Every people has it. And now no people have it, except for the Indians. They can still paint it with impunity upon an elephant's forehead. It's a tragedy. If you can create a narrative in which the things that threaten you are, are bad, it's a, it's a little bit like you know, Nietzsche's slave morality, you're able to eliminate them from the con conversation. And uh -huh. so one of the great challenges we have, I think, Sandy, is, is, in, is in reclaiming things from the narratives of the present so that they're not subordinated to the closing okay. down, uh, which which denies us the very opening up that mm -hmm. they might otherwise bring us. Yes. Very interesting oh. that you, you keep talking, I know in, in our last conversation as well, very have a very Schopenhauerian outlook. And, and you're frequently describing the paradox of life and death and of course, you know, there are many images in the, in the tradition of this. I mean, the seed has to be broken in order to live. Uh, uh, most prominently, of course, in the Christian religion, that the, the death of Christ is, is the life of all. Would you say a bit more about this paradox of life and death and how death becomes life, the dying to ourselves, to our own immediacy in a way, can become life in a richer form? Yes. You see, I have a colleague with, with whom I correspond, and he will not understand it. He, he doesn't understand that art is not life affirmative. It is life redemptive. Um, that's, it redeems life. It's such Without a key it, distinction, isn't it? The difference between life, life affirmative in, a, in, a, in an empty, sort of immediate yeah. way, and life yes, redemptive. Redemption. If you understand life as being a sorry tour of duty, then there are certain things that redeem it. It's the flower of existence, as Schopenhauer calls it, that we can find it in the giving of alms. We can find it in academic pursuit for its own purposes, scientific pursuit, the pursuit of philosophy. We can find it in the hermitage life, the life of the hermit, the life of the saint. We can find it above all in aesthetic experience, that the misery of existence and its constant pressure can, as it were, be released by the look of a single 
passage of paint on a bit of canvas. Suddenly, you forget about all your concerns. It's a split second. But what Schopenhauer calls it is the cessation of the wheel of Ixion, of willing that's constantly grinding, to which we are bound. And periodically, we'll experience it. A, a cessation of that turn, that wheel of Ixion. And that's when we're having a profound aesthetic experience and we see an object distinct from our desires, A, to own it, B, to partake in the action that the picture depicts, C, to um, copulate with it. This is one of the marvels of the great uh, tradition of nude painting in the West, that um, you know, you'll see a beautiful nude by Botticelli or, or Raphael, and you will feel not the slightest stirring in your loins. How is that done? This is what I call sailing very close to the wind. It's absolutely vertiginous activity and how they can do it, how they can keep the, a painting of a nude boy or girl that is, is, is equivalent to bromide in a soldier's tea. It turns him, <laughs> nothing will cause him to say, <laughs> you know what I mean? Do you understand what I mean? So this is the marvel of the what we call the more erotic arts, the, the, the arts of the beauty of, of, you know, of, of the flesh, as you might say. The, the Venus de Milo, you know that one, without the arms? It's surrounded with people in the Louvre looking at it, staring in adoration. And not one of them is thinking, what would it be like to go jig-a-jig with that? Not one of them. And that, for me, is a gigantic hammer blow struck against the, the iniquitous will to live. This is what art can do. It's marvelous. How do we learn from the past in a way that is, that is not you know, reactionary conservatism or backward-looking looking romanticism? I mean, the paradox of creativity in the arts is precisely that looking back becomes something new. Can you yes. say something about a, a fruitful relation to the tradition well i always say i always proclaim myself as a stalwart backward looker uh i'm very pr proud of that or oh, not proud but not ashamed put it that way I'm, I'm looking backwards all the time because frankly stephen i'm no prophet i don't know what the future holds i'm not a soothsayer i don't have any crystal ball but i do know what was done in the past and i look back and i proceed slowly along the way whether it's forward or not, I don't care. Rather like a person would row a boat. If you think of a man trying to row a boat sitting forward, well, what do we get here? We get a very weak stroke on the oars and we get no sense of direction because he's wiggling all over the way. Whereas the man that sits looking backwards in the boat to row has a very powerful stroke and can keep himself straight in reference to his wake. Thus, he's a good target. He turns around periodically, yes. But generally speaking, you row the boat looking backwards. And that's a noble way to go forwards. So I use this boat analogy quite often. And it's quite appealing to people. And it can often be conclusive for them. But they don't like that because they don't want forward looking to be compromised in any way in terms of its hegemony. We actually have this mantra that we say nowadays going forward. Uh, we say it at the ends of most sentences when we're trying to make a case for something moving forward. 
we, we do we do we drop this in as a, as it were a kind of contemporary prayer to the idea of futurism moving forward. So I've never had that. So I finished my sentences looking backward, um, and this this really confuses them. <laughs> So we, we know that the time and the arrow thing is spurious anyway, and that time past and time future might be contained in time present, as you understand. And uh, Schopenhauer's very good on that. He's the first really to put that up as a question, which T.S. Eliot then takes over in The Wasteland. Is it The Wasteland? Yeah, uh, I think that's in uh, The Four Quartets. If, uh, uh, that's The Quartets, perhaps. actually. I might be, I may be, but I may he's be the one that he, he, he puts that in. But it's Schopenhauer that starts that off. The idea that, that we, we perceive time in a, in a lineal sense only to make sense of it, but everything's happening all at once. This would explain ghosts and premonition. Now, well, not entirely, but it would go some way perhaps to help. So the, um, the, the thing is, the backward looking uh, is, is what I am. And, but then when I look back, I see a great deal of variety in the past. Look back and you see neoclassicism, right? as an architectural and sculptural idiom. In America, it's very, very popular amongst the modernists to condemn classicism or neoclassicism as the architecture of slavery. This is often used, you'll have heard it. Because, you know, the House of Tara in Gone with the Wind looks kind of vernacular neoclassical. Now, the problem is, tell me then what abolitionist architecture looks like. You know, it too is classical. See, uh, th there's a monument to Fox in Westminster Abbey that Canova admired. It's by Wyatt. And it's a monument to, it's got a, a picture of a, a statue of a slave in it, thanking Fox for his freedom. And it's a thundering neoclassical monument. So there, and then John Flaxman did the Am I Not a Man and a Brother? medallion for the abolitionist movement, abolitionist movement. And then when it came to build the great big uh, Lincoln Memorial, which has become a, well, a kind of shrine of the liberation, which is possibly yet to happen. And there we see a, a mighty thunderclap of a, a neoclassical monument. So what you'll find is that there's a lot of radicalism associated with neoclassicism. For instance, Thomas Muir of Hunters Hill, a Scottish radical, who was actually deported to Australia for seditious activity. It was uh, Thomas Banks, the sculptor, that made his uh, portrait profile. Banks is a super neoclassicist. And then we think of the French Revolution as being, at one level, uh, you know, a, a liberational movement, and then as it stiffens up and freezes during the terror into an, ice, an icicle zone. But they both, they both these... Both these two views of the revolution both espouse the classical. So that's that. So we, we find that in, in all these cultures that, that there are differences. We see the painters of the late 19th century, the Impressionists, for instance, and we see somebody like Degas, and then we discover that Degas was a contra Dreyfusard. That was, he didn't believe that Dreyfus was innocent. Do you know, there's a story that, that Degas was walking down the street and he met a friend and the friend said to him, whither and whence? And 
Degas answered, I'm going to the Palais de Justice to murder a Jew. And at, at the paintings of Degas, we have all to worship. See how it doesn't fit? Nothing, nothing is very convenient, put it that way. Of all the anti-Semites amongst the French Impressionist painters, uh, the second worst was Paul Cézanne, who was a friend of Zola, who was a Dreyfusard, right? So nothing simple. But the worst of the lot was Renoir with his soft, pretty picture children. It was an absolute coruscating anti-Semite. So we look at the past in a way where we think we absolutely cannot be certain of the ground we stand on. Because it is indeed a, it is a ploy of evil, Stephen, that evil has a very clever way of hiding itself. You see, simple badness does its bad thing and shows itself, whereas evil hides behind the form of the good. And that's exactly what's happening in Nazi Germany. And that's what's happening in so many other fields of endeavour where bad people do great things. What I do is I don't look at the past from the point of view of the societies there. I don't look at the past in the point of view of the biographies of the people that worked there. I look at the past from the point of view of the product alone. Like my daughter looks or did look at the big dome in, in Germany. I look at it with as much innocence as I possibly can muster and see, is this the form of the good? And no matter what my ears might hear. Yes, the heart is above all things deceitful, as I think the Old Testament prophet says. Yes. And the temptation to iconoclasm, you know, because we find something bad, and it may very well be very bad, mixed in with someone who, is, who also created wonderful things, it's all the more important to encounter that precisely because it may illuminate our own capacity oh, for destruction. Absolutely right. Especially when we think we are doing good. This, I think, one of the things that is so problematic with cancel culture is that, you know, this person did this or did that. It's not that we oughtn't to be extremely careful and critical about yeah. the deeper moral, ethical actions of others and of ourselves. But precisely if we want to do that, we have to be open to the, the radical complexity of our own motivations and not delude ourselves into thinking that we are immune from the very sins and uh -huh. self and other destructions that we would yeah. see in others. Yeah, we're just as bad as them, except we don't produce glorious things. <laughs> you see what I mean? <laughs> you see, when I see the Acropolis of Athens, the Acropolis of Athens, I look at that and I think that, despite the Athenians, because at that time, of course, the Athenians were running the most appalling democratic fascist empire, uh, screwing money out of tiny states that they were terrifying with their ghastly fleet. They were atrocious people. Yet they did that. They made these beautiful buildings. So that despite the Athenians. And this is what we have to say but sometimes when we make a piece of work, for instance, I mean, I sometimes make a wee thing and it looks lovely. And I think, oh, it's amazing. That was done despite me. 
a poor sinner. And maybe that sounds a bit perverse, but you feel, you feel that things of beauty do stand as a kind of reproach. I want to ask you, how does art speak to our finitude without surrendering to despair? Well, what I would like to do is to be able to discharge as long as possible the daily task that I've allotted myself, which is to fight hard and, and, and smite, smite with blows the, the will to live imperative in, in life, in existence. And I happen to do that in a wee way with making bits of sculpture, small things out of clay, mud, plaster, whatever, bits of bronze, a wee bit of marble there. What we're trying to do is at each moment just make momentary, momentary thwartings of that grinding will, that Ixian's wheel turning, tiny little arrestments where the truth can be seen and our own interests, our own lusts, primarily indeed our sexual interests, are put to the side and we become pure knowers, knowers without an axe to grind, we become disinterested in the proper sense of the word. And that, for me, is the redemption of existence. Mm. I'm making a, a figure of, of a, a Taiki, T-Y-C-H-E. That's a kind of Fortuna figure. Um, and she carries in her arm a, an infant um, who is seen reaching. And he's called Kairos, and he's the god of opportunity in, in Greece. And this is to go on a monument, uh, a monumental tower in Dallas, Texas, that's being built just now. It's a tower that's really monumentalizing the virtues of the free market system and, and how it survived against all the odds during the last century. And so Taiki is a Fortuna figure, and she wears a mural corona, that's a crown made of walls, castle walls. The most famous taiki of all, in antiquity at least, was the taiki of Antioch. I think it's in the Vatican. Or maybe it's in Istanbul. I can't remember. Anyway, it's a beautiful figure of fortuna, taiki, fortune, good or bad. And her type continues on right through modern age. And we find the Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor is the greatest modern Taiki of them all. T-Y-C-H-E. It's worth looking up. Give us a positive sketch of what art can and you might say should be positively. You see, a building can be redeemed by a piece of sculpture put on it, as long as it's properly designed in by an architect that knows how to handle sculpture and an architect who's not regarded it as some sort of gob-on option at the end. So you don't need great big sums of money to do this, but you do need to have a sense of politesse. If you build, a, say, a housing project, you see, and the architect seeks to put a sequence of sculpture into it, then what he's doing is he's introducing a polite redundancy. It's politeness, it's etiquette. When you walk down the road and you see somebody coming up on your side, obviously your social distance, these days, and then you say good morning to the person. Now, you don't need to say good morning to him or her. It doesn't get you 
quicker to your destination by any means. It brings you no income in. It doesn't increase your estates. But it does function as an adornment to your miserable quotidian being. It's an embellishment. It embellishes the encounter. And this is why we put sculpture in buildings. Just exactly why we try to tidy ourselves up when we go out into society and why we make sure that we've got on a proper tie in any circumstances and that when we finish a phone call, we say, thanks very much. Lovely to speak to you. Bye, 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 bye. You know, because we want to be the last. We want to be the last one to confer the redundant benefit on the conversation. So that's really, in the end, why sculpture was not seen on buildings. Because I have to say, unfortunately, the architects that design them nowadays are the very kind of people who never say hello to somebody else coming up the road because they don't know who they are. They're suspicious of them. And it's not in their interests to expend breath on them. Hence, there is a moral dimension to this kind of, of, of uh, dereliction. People that don't want to put sculpture in buildings do so because for the same reason as they don't want to say hello to folk they don't know. You were speaking about embellishment a little while ago. You've done so much to embellish uh, cities in Scotland and around the world. And okay. I thank you for that. And I, I, I just hope you, you keep going on uh, for many, many years. Uh, you spoke about the, the redundant benefit of, <laughs> of, of art and of saying, of saying goodbye. Yes. Uh, this conversation has been exactly that kind of redundant benefit for me and I think for our listeners and viewers. So thank you very, very much. Well, thank you, Stephen. Um, I've just got to say that I'm now 61 and um, I don't think I've got very much longer to go, but I will be working to my dying day if ever I live that long. Well, in parting, will you, would you give any advice to young people who want to make things, Sandy, who, 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 who want to create and leave something behind? How would you advise them? Yeah. Uh, well, <clears throat> you shouldn't want to leave something behind. Try, I would say to them, try to make things that are better than you, could, you thought you could manage and make sure that you don't sign them at the end. Uh, so many young people make an object in order to sign it. Well, I I obviously sign my work with a little printed name, not like a big graphic signature. That's vulgar. Um, and you do it simply for the record. But um, you should really, really hope that the work will not... Well, I'll put it this way. You you, you put up work in, in, the, in the social world not as a monument to yourself, but as a monument to the person monumentalized. If you think about it, Statue of Liberty, yeah? can you remember the name of the maker? No. no. Interesting. Okay, the, the Statue of Jesus at Rio. You know the one? Arms out. You, you, you don't know the name of the sculptor. What about uh, uh, Mount Rushmore? You've never heard of him. Isn't that amazing that these are three of the most famous works of sculpture and they have obliterated the names of their makers. Statue of Liberty is made by Bartholdi, Auguste Bartholdi. <coughs> um, it was Landowski that made the uh, Christ 
in Rio, and Gutzon Borglum carved Mount Rushmore. These people all forfeited themselves for their work. And that's what I've always aimed to do. Well, Sandy, I know that you're, you, you're, you no doubt hope that your own works will, will obliterate your own name one day. Yes. But I must say, I'm damn glad to know you, uh, you, Sandy Stoddart, right now. And it's a great honor to Ralston College to have you as a member of our Board of Visitors. And I can't wait to welcome you sometime, I hope soon, here to Savannah. Marvelous. You've been listening to the Ralston College podcast. Today's guest was the Scottish sculptor Alexander Stoddart. You can see Stoddart's sculptures in Edinburgh, Glasgow, Oxford, at Princeton University and the University of Notre Dame, and in Buckingham Palace. There's also some great videos of Sandy online, where you can also find many good photographs of his sculptures. We love hearing from you, our listeners. So please feel free to leave us a comment or to send us a note. This podcast is made possible by our listeners. So if you can, please consider supporting our work to reform, renew, and reimagine higher education at www.ralston.ac. Ralston College aspires to be a home for anyone and everyone seeking to build a free and flourishing human culture. And I'm not using a figure of speech here either. We have work to do, and we need talents of any and every kind, all of us, if we're going to build anything like what our forebears built for us. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Till next time. <laughs>